Whence comes to you, you've asked, this singular sadness that rises like the sea on the naked black rock? Once our heart has gathered the grapes from its vineyard, living is an evil. There's a secret known to all, a simple pain with no mystery, as obvious to all men as your gaiety. So abandon your search, inquisitive beauty, and though your voice is sweet, be still, be silent, ignorant, ever enraptured soul, mouth with a childlike laugh. Still more than life, death holds us frequently with subtle bombs. So let my heart become drunk with a lie, let it plunge into your fair eyes, into a fair dream, and slumber long in the shadow of your lashes. As I think about the words that I just read, I'm remembering the great W.H. Auden's about suffering. They were never wrong, the old masters, how well they understood its human position. And it is precisely the position of suffering in our postmodern lives, the place it takes, the space we allocate for it, how it pervades and therefore defines our relationships that has been at the fore of my mind. This is Poet on Song, a podcast that proposes to love a poet with you and to accompany them with great music. My name is Mariama Antoine, and today it is the melancholy, the spleen, the woefully trenchant song of the French poet Charles Baudelaire that we'll explore. Like a bird on a wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free I've been thinking a lot about the degree to which the mood of our times reflects the bustling cultural changes of the end of 19th century Parisian culture, precisely because Charles Baudelaire's poetry rests in that interlude where great strides are being made at the cultural level. That something of the individual, something important, is overwhelmed, is racked, is hurt, is sacrificed. If Baudelaire's Paris was a Hosmanian bustle of new avenues, parks, and residences that have now become synonymous with the city's elegance, its construction, it would seem, was painful to many. And Baudelaire's song, his restless and bohemian lifestyle, his poetry, showcases that pain, showcases the numbness, the inertia that arises from the first world. It's a dull, controlled, reined-in type of suffering that he points to. And in doing so, reveals the implications of what I think is a great defect of our Western culture, the supremacy of the intellect. Not quite that. Rather, the consequences of our inability to seek the intellect as a passage to wisdom. Wise, not just clever. 
feature of change. And the question that comes to my mind after these months of isolation is how much pain, if at all, is needed in order to strike the balance between progress and fulfillment. I don't think that Baudelaire ever really answers that question, but suffers in such a spectacular way and writes in such conscious strokes of the pen that anyone who has ever felt the weight of sorrow comes to understand that this is not only happening to me. I want to read you this poem because it reveals how much he aspired towards weightlessness while being shackled by his own agonies, which reflect, in my mind, his time's silent marching agony. It's called Elevation. I'm using the William Aguilar translation. Above the lakes, above the vows, the mountains and the woods, the clouds, the sea, Beyond the sun, beyond the ether, beyond the confines of the starry sphere, my soul, you move with ease. Like a strong swimmer in rapture in the wave, you wing your way blightly through the boundless space with virile joy unspeakable, fly far, far away from this baneful miasma and purify yourself in the celestial air. Drank the ethereal fire of those limpid regions as you would the purest of heavenly nectars. Beyond the vast sorrows and all the vexations that weigh upon our lives and obscure our vision, happy is he who can with vigorous wings soar towards those fields, luminous and serene. He whose thoughts, like skylark, 
towards the morning sky take flight, who hovers over life and understands with ease the language of flowers and silent things. I was listening to Michelle Obama's podcast while I was cooking, and I heard her say that she was suffering from a low-grade depression, which I found interesting. Dystymia is what they call it. Sadness, tempered melancholy. And I wondered how many of us were living through that in this post-era of Trumpism, of Proud Boys versus Antifa, of COVID, of isolation, of distant learning, distant knowing, distant touch, elbow to elbow, and how much of that was a feature of these specific events and how much of it reflected the shifting trends of the world order. One thing is sure, I do not wish for all things to remain as they once were. Yeah. 
So I wondered how much of that melancholy is a response to feeling uprooted by change or by the anticipation of change we can't see but know is coming. That things will be required of us in a way that it has not been required of previous generations simply because, well, it's never been a question of the species' survival before. So how much of the known, its comfort and vices, are we willing, capable of putting down? I wondered all that as I read and reread this poem. It's called To the Reader. The translation is Roy Campbell's. Brace yourself. It's powerful. Folly, error, avarice, and vice employ our souls and waste our body's forces. As mengi beggars incubate their lice, we nourish our innocuous remorse. Our sins are stubborn, craven our repentance, and for our weak vows we ask excessive prices. Trusting our tears, we wash away the sentence we sneak off, where the muddy road entices. Cradled in evil that thrice great magician, the devil, rocks our souls that can't resist. And the rich metal of our volition is vaporized by this sage alchemist. The devil pulls the strings by which we're worked. By all revolting objects lured, we slink heldward. Each day, one more step we're jerked, feeling no horror through the shades that stink. And just as a lustful pauper bites and kisses the scarred and shriveled breast of an old whore, we steal along the roadside furtive blisses, squeezing them like stale oranges for more. Packed tight like hives of maggots thickly seething within our brain, a host of demon surges deep down into our lungs at every breathing death flows an unseen river moaning dirges. If rape or arson poison of the knife have woven no pleasing patterns in the stuff of this drab existence we accept as life, it is because we are not bold enough. Among the jackal, leopards, mongrels, apes, snakes, scorpions, vultures that would hellish then squeal, roar, write, gamble, crawl with monstrous shapes in each man's foul menagerie of sin, there's one more den that all. He never gambles, nor crawls, nor raw, but with the rest would drawn gladly of this whole earth, would make a shamble and swallow up existence with a yawn, boredom. He smokes his hookah while he dreams of gibbets, weeping tears he cannot smother. You know this dainty monster too, it seems. Hypocrite reader, you, my twin, my brother. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river You can hear the boats go by You can spend the night beside her 
she's half crazy but that's why you wanna be there and she feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from china and just when you mean to tell her that you have no love to give her then she gets you her wavelength and she lets the river answer that you've always been her lover and you want to travel with her and you want to travel blind and you know she will trust you for you've touched her perfect body with your mind Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water and he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower and when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him he said all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them but he himself was broken long before the sky would open forsaken almost human he sank beneath your wisdom like a stone and you want to travel with him and you want to travel blind and trust him for he's touched your perfect body with his mind now Suzanne takes your hand and she leads you to the river she is wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters and the sun pours down like honey our lady of the harbor and she shows you where to look among the garbage and the flowers there are heroes in the seaweed there are children in the morning they are leaning out for love and they will lean that way forever while Suzanne holds the mirror travel with her and you want to travel blind and you can trust her for she's touched your perfect body with her mind but now grew up in a France that was in the process of reinventing itself what was then an unfinished story as well. Within his own lifetime, France underwent tremendous change. The historical currents that would permanently shift monarchy to republic were well underway. The July Revolution of 1830 were events that he lived through from behind the walls of his boarding school, Louis Le Grand. This quaking feeling of instability is what he reflects best about his era, and brilliantly so because he images for us the lure, the pull of seduction, of destruction. He does so in a style that is entirely his own. 
that is radical for his time, that is modern. It's the city. It's man's isolation in the city. There exists, he argues, in all men, two tendencies, one towards God and the other towards the devil. The invocation of God in the spiritual is the desire to rise in grace. The invocation of Satan, the joy of the sending. So, evil is seductive, pain alluring. There is joy in this descent into vice. I find that to be very true. True in the way that children in one swoop will destroy towers that they have spent hours erecting. The Flowers of Evil is what he entitled his first collection of poems. What an interesting combination of words. That which allows for the fruit, naturally, is the flower. So that which allows for a descent into evil. What Baudelaire understood about the seductive pull of evil is remarkable. He saw in those demons that they coexisted within the same experience at the same time so that no one, nothing, is ever good or bad, rather committed in that instant, in that action, to goodness or evil. I think that he also saw the frailty of goodness, how it's caricatured in our postmodern lives. Here's a poem that reflects this idea. It's called The Albatross. And I often think of it as a metaphor for the poet, which is the most traditional reading. I've also come to see it as a symbol for goodness in our postmodern lives. I'll read it to you in a bit. Mais où vont tous les garçons du temps qui passe? Mais où sont tous les garçons du temps passé? Lorsque le tambour roula, 
se sont fait petits soldats. Quand saurons-nous un jour? Quand saurons-nous un jour? Mais où vont tous les soldats du temps qui passe? Mais où sont tous les soldats du temps passé? Sont tombés dans les combats et couchés dessous leur croix. Quand saurons-nous un jour? Quand saurons-nous un jour? Il est fait de temps de croix. Le temps qui passe, il est fait de temps de croix. Le temps passé, pauvre tombe de l'oubli, les fleurs les ont envahies. Quand saurons-nous un jour? Quand saurons-nous un jour? The Albatros. This is the William Aguilar translation. Often, to amuse themselves, the men of a crew catch albatrosses, those vast seabirds that indolently follow a ship as it glides over the deep, briny sea. Scarcely have they placed them on the deck, that these kings of the sky, clumsy, ashamed, pathetically let their great white wings drag beside them like oars. That winged voyager, how weak and gauche he is, so beautiful before. Now comic and ugly. One man worries his beak with a stubbly clay pipe. Another limps, mimics the cripple who once flew. The poet resembles this prince of cloud and sky, who frequents the tempest and laughs at the bowmen. When exiled on the earth, the butt of hoot and jeers, his giant wings prevent him from walking. Baudelaire dedicated great thought to wine and hashish, which we won't engage here, but of wine he said that it made men social, and hashish that it was a weapon for suicide. That's interesting to me, that business of drugging, anesthetizing, the pain of modern life. But how much of our dependence on drugs to focus, distance, the vitality of experience is really sustainable? There is loss and all this, I think, and mourning. And in coping with this loss, it seemed that somehow we must acknowledge it. So what is it that is lost? Is it identity, community, the humane, a sense of belonging? Is it certitude, dominance, masculinity? Is it whiteness, God, the greatness of the West? And what does it mean to lose 
so quietly, so privately, so unconsciously? Is it the same for people as it is for nations, for cultures, for civilizations? I'll read you this last poem entitled The Swan, which attempts to wrestle with these questions. The poem begins with an allusion to Andromache, a woman whose character came to represent the plight of Trojan women under a fallen empire. And the Simoi here is a river, is dedicated to Victor Hugo. Andromache, I think of you, that little stream, that mirror poor and sad, which glittered long ago with the vast majesty of your widow's grieving, that false Simoi is swollen by your tears, suddenly made fruitful, my teeming memory as I walked across the new carousel. Old Paris is no more. The form of a city changes more quickly, alas, than the human heart. I see only in memory that Kempos stall, those piles of shaft, of rough-hewn cornices, the grass, the huge stone blocks stained green and puddles of water, and in the window shine the jumbled bric-a-brac. Once a menagerie was set up there, there, one morning, at the hour when labor awakens, when the clear, cold sky with dismal hub-hub of the street cleaners and scavengers break the silence, I saw a swan that had escaped from his cage, that stroked the dry pavement with his webbed feet and dragged his white plumage over the uneven ground. Beside a dry gutter, the bird opened his beak, restlessly bathed his wings in the dust and cried, homesick for his native land. Rain, when will you fall? Thunder, when will you roam? I see that hapless bird, that strange and fiddled myth, towards the sky at times like a man in Ovid, towards the ironic, cruelly blue sky, stretch his habit head upon his quivering neck as if he were reproaching God. Paris changes, but nothing in my melancholy has stirred. New palaces, scaffolding, blocks of stones, old quarters, all to me has become allegory. And my dear memories are heavier than rocks. So before the Louvre, an image oppresses me. I think of my great swan with his crazy motions, ridiculous, sublime, like a man in exile, relentlessly gnawed by longing, and in a view, Andromache base chattel, fallen from the embrace of a mighty husband into the hands of proud virus, standing bowed in rapture before an empty tomb, widow of Hector, alas, and wife of Elenus. And I think of black people, wasted and consumptive, trudging through mud, seeking with haggard eyes the absent palm trees of their superb Africa, behind the immense wall of mist, and of those who have lost what can never be found again, never. And those who drink deeply from their tears and suckle pain as they would the good she-wolf of the puny orphans withering like flowers. Thus, in the dim forest to which my soul withdraws, an ancient memory sounds loud the hunting horn. And I think of the sailors forgotten on some island of the captives, of the vanquish, and of many more. 
solitude, my sweetest choice. Baudelaire's life ended in 1861 in syphilitic delirium in a hotel room in Brussels. And with him died the caustic dandy, the son of the art critic, the translator, who had brought Edgar Allan Poe to the French public, stepson of the General Pete de Sestite, of impeccable style, whose trenchant remarks often made him cruel, who flaunted his Haitian mulatto mistress, his black Venus, in the face of bourgeois convention, and whose every breath and every stroke of the pen showed us why it hurts. In terms of healing, I don't think we can go to him for that. Though he attempts to, he never really escapes the rational materialism of mid-19th century Parisian culture, rather is consumed by it. Consumed by what Kierkegaard referred to as the creeping villainy, its vices, the torpor, the destructive instinct that comes to men when history announces change. But his song is modernities, its obscenities, its exhaustion, a feature of our daily lives. So instead, I'll leave you with Marcus Aurelius, for he is wise and his beautiful thought. Come to thy own aid, if thy carest at all for thyself, and while it is still in thy power. This has been Poet on Song, and my name is Mariama Antoine. The music that you've heard on this podcast is as follows. Fur Alina by Arvo Pratt. Bird on the Wire by Rosemary Stanley. Spiegel and Spiegel by Arvo Pratt. Ossiciate di Piegami, Please Stop Bothering Me. Alexandro Scarlatti, Nora Fisher, Marnix Dorenstein. Susan by Leonard Cohen. King Arthur of the British Worthy by Henry Purcell, interpreted by Andreas Scholl and the Academia Benzentina. Où vont les fleurs by Marlene Dietrich. Vocalise Opus 34, number 14 by Sergei Rachmaninov, interpreted by Misla Rostropovich. O Solitude by Rosemary Stanley and Dom Lenina. Les fleurs by Clara Luciani. I hope that you'll come again for I have my eyes set on Toni Morrison, whose aestheticized prose is worthy of the word song. See you then.
métiers divers me donnent des insomnies que rien ne me guérit pas même toi quand je cherche un sens 